I'm Father Ron Shibley, founder and director of the Anglican Internet Church, and I welcome you to the revised edition of Episode 6 in the AIC Christian Education video series, The Nicene Creed. The revised series includes many new illustrations and enhanced cross-references to other AIC resources in video, podcast, and print form available through links on our website. In this episode, my focus is on the final phrases describing the Lord Jesus Christ from and the third day he rose again through and whose kingdom shall have no end. The music used in the opening and closing titles is Reginald Heber's Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, written in 1827 A.D. based on Revelation 4, verses 6 to 11, 5, 13, 15, 2 to 4, and Isaiah 6, 1 to 3. It is performed on the organ in England by Richard Irwin to the tune Nicaea, composed by John B. Dykes in 1861 A.D. I encourage viewers to visit Richard's dedicated webpage, https colon right slash right slash play dot hymns without words dot com. And I thank Richard for granting permission for its use. The Nicene Creed continues with, And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. The most detailed gospel account is in John 20, verses 1 to 10, which tells us that when Mary Magdalene went to his tomb on the third day after his burial, being Sunday morning, the first day of the week, she found the stone in front of his tomb rolled away and the tomb guarded by an angel. She carried the news to St. Peter and others. St. John and St. Peter went with her to the empty tomb. The illustration is a circa 1315 A.D. Mosaic of the Resurrection at Korah Church, officially Church of the Holy Savior, Constantinople, now Istanbul, Turkey. St. Matthew in Matthew 1621 and St. Mark in Mark 831 refer to the prophecy of resurrection. In the Gospel of St. Luke, it is spoken by Jesus himself in Luke 9, verse 22, the Son of Man must be suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. Jesus arose from the dead on the third day, Sunday. The illustration is a European 19th century stained glass depiction of the risen Christ showing the apostles and followers who are reported in John 20 verse 1 to John 21 Verse 8, to have seen the risen Christ in the days following his resurrection, including Peter, Thomas, John, Nathaniel, called Bartholomew and other Gospels, and six other disciples unnamed, plus Mary Magdalene. The Nicene Creed continues with, And ascended into heaven. This statement is also based on Scripture, the account of the ascension in Mark 16, verse 19, and Luke 24, verses 50 to 53. Jesus' ascension, also called being taken up, was witnessed by many of the disciples. 
The church celebrates the Feast of the Ascension on the 40th day after Easter, which is always a Thursday. In modern worship, the Ascension Day readings and related music are often transferred to the following Sunday, which is called the Sunday after Ascension in the Anglican tradition. The illustration is a 16th century Eastern Orthodox icon of the Ascension from Bulgaria. The Nicene Creed continues with, And sitteth on the right hand of the Father. The Nicene Creed says that Jesus went to sit at the right hand of the Father in Mark 16, verse 19. According to Eastern Church tradition, the fact that Jesus is seated represents an eternal enthronement in his kingdom, and we'll talk more about the concept of kingdom later in this episode. The idea possibly influenced the Western Church as well. The illustration is a mosaic of the seated Christ as Pantocrator in the Basilica of St. Ambrose in Milan, Italy. The right-hand theme has deep roots in the Old and New Testaments. Moses credited the right hand of God with the victory over the Egyptians, saying in Exodus 15, verse 6, Thy right hand, O Lord, is become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed in pieces the enemy. In Koine Greek, the same concept is found in the term Pantocrator, or Lord God Almighty, used nearly a dozen times by St. John in Revelation. The illustration is the Christ Pantocrator mosaic in the dome at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, Jerusalem, a late 19th century church built on the foundations of a much older structure. An Old Testament and New Testament precedent for the term is Jesus quoting Psalm 110 verse 1 in a conversation with some Pharisees reported in Matthew 22 verse 44. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. Here Jesus is quoting the Septuagint text of Psalm 110, verse 1. The illustration is the 6th century Christ Pantocrator icon at the Monastery of St. Catherine in Sinai, thought to have been commissioned by the Byzantine Emperor Justinian. Another New Testament precedent, also spoken by Jesus, is the parable of the wedding feast, in which Jesus implied that the faithful, like himself, shall sit in the honored position at the right hand of the Father. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The illustration is a late 18th, early 19th century copy of a Byzantine Orthodox icon of St. Matthew showing Matthew holding his gospel, which bears the legend, this is the story of the birth of Jesus Christ. Other New Testament precedents are St. Peter's teaching that Christians are exalted, quote, by the right hand of God. That's from Acts 2, verses 33 and 34. 
And St. Stephen's vision before his death described Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father in Acts 7, verse 55 and 56, both reported in St. Luke's continuation of the gospel story in Acts of the Apostles. The illustration is an 18th century Russian Orthodox icon of St. Luke bearing the traditional symbol for Luke, the ox, based upon Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel 1.10. St. Paul continued the theme of the honored position being the right hand of God in two epistles in Romans 8.34 and Colossians 3.1. St. Paul is traditionally credited with Hebrews, which contains four references to Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. These four are Hebrews 1, 3, 8, 1, 10, 12, and 12, 2. The illustration is an unfinished early 15th century Russian Orthodox icon of St. Paul by Andrei Rublyov. For more on the concept of the right hand of God in the Old Testament and New Testaments and in Christian theology, see Right Hand of God, page 187, in the AIC bookstore publication, Layman's Lexicon, a handbook of scriptural, theological, and liturgical terms, available in paperback and Kindle through our virtual bookstore at www.anglicaninternetchurch.net. The Nicene Creed continues with, and he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead. I will discuss these three closely related phrases as a single thought rather than separately. After Christ's resurrection and his ascension into heaven, the leaders of the church pondered what Jesus had meant by his promise to return again. In the early church, that expectation was called the parousia, the King James Version translated parousia into English as coming. The expectation among the apostolic community was that the second coming would be in their lifetime or in the near future. The illustration is the last judgment based on Revelation 20 verses 11 to 15 as illustrated in the Bamberg Apocalypse, an early 11th century illuminated manuscript taken from page 171 in the AIC bookstore publication, Revelation, an Idealist Interpretation, like Layman's Lexicon, available from our virtual bookstore at www.anglicaninternetchurch.net. Jesus warned of the signs of the second coming in Matthew 24, verses 3 to 14, but also said that even he did not know the timing saying, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Matthew 24, verses 36 and 37. The reference to Noah means that even Noah did not know the when until the rainfall began. The illustration for this and the next slides is a Byzantine Orthodox icon of St. Matthew, which was used in previous slides. 
the traditional church has remained faithful to Jesus' further instruction in the Gospel of St. Matthew that the faithful should always be ready. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Matthew 24, verses 43 and 44. Eastern Church patristic fathers were among the first to teach the traditional Christian doctrine that the faithful must always be prepared, watchful, ready, no matter what the timing should prove to be. They also taught that it is unwise, in light of Jesus' word in the words in Matthew twenty four, thirty six and thirty seven and forty three forty four, to spend time trying to guess the timing. The Nicene Creed's expectation of judgment also has Old Testament precedents. All five books of the Pentateuch, or the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, make it clear that God is the final judge of all men. In Psalm 9, verse 8, the psalmist is confident that God will, quote, judge the world in righteousness. The illustration for this and the next slide is again the 11th century illumination of Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15, called the Last Judgment. The words of the canticle, Te Deum Laudamus, inspired by a 4th century prayer in the Eastern tradition, expresses the idea well and is used extensively in Anglican worship. We believe that thou shalt come to be our judge. We therefore pray thee, help thy servant, whom thou hast redeemed with thy precious blood. Make them to be numbered with thy saints in glory everlasting. The word quick in the phrase we're discussing is Elizabethan English, meaning all that are still living and comes from the usage in the first English Book of Common Prayer published in 1549 A.D., some modern translations of the Nicene Creed say to judge both the living and the dead. The Nicene Creed continues with the final phrase in this episode, whose kingdom shall have no end. This statement was not part of the Nicene Creed as ratified by the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., it was added at the Second Ecumenical Council, which met at the imperial capital of Constantinople in 381 A.D. The direct New Testament precedent is from the Nativity narrative in the Gospel of St. Luke. The words that I will read are spoken by the Archangel Gabriel to the Blessed Virgin Mary in the Annunciation in Luke 1, verse 33. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. The illustration is a Byzantine Orthodox icon of the Archangel Gabriel, originally painted at Constantinople, but taken to Moscow around 1387 A.D., and now at the Tretyakov Gallery in Moscow. The name of the artist is unknown. His style is said to have influenced 14th century icon painters 
including such notables as Andrei Rublyov. The origin of the phrase is better understood in the Eastern Church tradition than in the Western, especially among the Protestant denominations. The same phrase, whose kingdom shall have no end, was first authorized by the bishops of the Eastern Church at the Synod of Iconium in 230 A.D. The phrase in that case was the church's answer to an early heresy over the meaning of thousand and thousand years in Revelation chapter 20, The adoption of the phrase, whose kingdom shall have no end, should be seen as a condemnation of millennialism, or chiliasm in Greek. The synod further ruled that the concept was not based on scripture. For more, see the primer on numerology in Revelation, which you'll find on pages 7 to 11, and a discussion of the concept of millennialism on pages 164 to 165, in Revelation, an idealist interpretation, available at our virtual bookstore at www.anglicaninternetchurch.net. An Old Testament precedent is the frequent use in the book of Psalms of the terms forever and forever and ever. The modern version, based upon the King James translation, merges what had been either two words or four words into the single word forever. Two examples are Psalm 9, verse 7, But the Lord shall endure forever, and the promise made in the refrain at the end of each verse in Psalm 136, And his mercy endureth forever. Other AIC resources mentioned in this episode can be accessed on demand 24-7 from our website, www.anglicaninternetchurch.net. You can watch this and other videos in the Bible study, Christian education, and seasonal video categories from either the Bible study page or the digital library page. If you prefer, you can listen to podcast versions of all our videos using links on the podcast archive page and podcast homilies based upon readings in the 1928 Book of Common Prayer from the links on the podcast homilies page. Or you can acquire and read any AIC bookstore publication using the virtual bookstore link at the bottom of the homepage, www.anglicaninternetchurch.net. The link takes you to my Amazon Author Central page, where nearly all our books are available either in paperback or Kindle editions. The dedicated direct link is https colon slash slash www.amazon.com write slash author right slash Ronald hyphen E hyphen Shibley. All the words after dot com must be in lowercase only. Please be assured that 100% of all book royalties are contributed to the AIC. Thank you for joining me for episode 6 in the Nicene Creed. Next time... In episode 7, the first of two episodes on the final paragraph of the Nicene Creed, 
I will focus on the phrases, and I believe in the Holy Ghost through worshiped and glorified. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be merciful to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Glory be to God for all things. Amen. This program has been a presentation of the Anglican Internet Church. We invite you to visit our website and make use of its resources at www.anglicaninternetchurch.net.